And I called the media in and I said, we could lose this election. And the media fell about laughing. And he had three speeches, one where we didn't make any inroads into the Premier's majority. Another one where we got some gains, we're putting on notice, that sort of crap. And then a third one where we would w win. And he had a blank page which just said... It was one of the biggest upsets in Australian political history. On one side was the outspoken Liberal Premier Jeff Kennett. His fresh-faced opponent was Steve Brax, who had only been anointed Labor leader earlier that year. Now, for the first time, Brax and Kennett have faced off in person to discuss the election that changed Victoria forever. Featuring interviews with key players from the Labor and Liberal teams, Face Off is a must-listen for anyone interested in Victorian history. Available on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The Sydney police allowed him to do whatever he liked. Pull any crime he liked, run any racket he liked, bash or shoot or run over whoever he liked. He was in the middle of it. Right in there with Roger Rogerson and all the other dirty coppers and crooks that ran Sydney and by extension affected crime and corruption all around Australia. Just about everyone was corrupt and anything was possible. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. Today we're going to talk about the unfortunate Nettie Smith. Nettie Smith is a gangster of note, mostly in Sydney, but known throughout the country, because during the 1980s he had what is known in the trade as the green light, that is, the Sydney police allowed him to do whatever he liked, pull any crime he liked, run any racket he liked, bash or shoot or run over whoever he liked on one proviso, that he paid the police off and he, that he didn't hurt any serving police. Nettie Smith came to prominence because of his connection with rogue detective Roger Rogerson. And in fact, it was the relationship between these two men, the giant crim, Nettie Smith, six foot six, 16 stone in the old money, and the dapper, deadly Rogerson. It was the connection between these two men that gave us the circumstances that produced that fabulous drama, Blue Murder. And this was the state of crime in Australia, according to Nettie. When he sat down to uh, scrawl out his memoirs back in the early 90s, memoirs that were edited and researched and rewritten by a very fine writer called Tom Noble, Nettie wrote this at the start of what became a very interesting book. He said, in Victoria, there isn't much corruption. They kill you down there. They certainly don't do too much business. And by business, of course, he meant corrupt business. He said, Queensland's not bad for gambling and prostitution, but they don't let you do armed robberies. But when I was working hot in New South Wales, just about everyone was corrupt and anything was possible. Late 1980 was the beginning of a decade of crime and corruption within the New South Wales Police Force that will never be equaled. And that's the way Nettie Smith started his own story. A story, of course, that is filtered through his own uh, reality and a story that he's careful not to dob in too many of his own friends or associates if it could cause trouble for him. In fact, he said that there's always been crime and corruption in New South Wales, and we know that's true all the way back to the rum core of the colonial era, but it was never as bad as it was at that high point or low point in the 1980s. 
And as he says, he was in the middle of it, right in there with Roger Rogerson and all the other dirty coppers and crooks that ran Sydney and by extension affected crime and corruption all around Australia. The reason we're having a look at Nettie Smith this month is that he's dying in Long Bay Jail. Nettie Smith is a long-term Parkinson's disease sufferer, but in the last few weeks he's also had heart problems and it meant that he has been taken out of jail to hospital and back again. The expectation is that he won't see Christmas. His death, whenever it comes, will not disappoint the many people that he's hurt. He was always a vicious crook. Whenever he got drunk, he'd end up in fights. And because of his size and his strength and the fact that he had a green light, the fact that he could buy his way out of any trouble, meant that he was fearless about who he hurt. And he would hurt anybody, providing they weren't actually Sydney police. We probably should sketch in his early days just to give people an idea of what creates a criminal. Nettie Smith, like hundreds and hundreds of other kids around Australia in World War II, was what they call a war baby. He was the unwanted, illegitimate child of a single woman in Sydney who'd got, become pregnant to an American serviceman on leave. There were many children born like this, people used to say, in those days, born out of wedlock, and many of them had bleak futures. Their mothers were often poor, battlers, perhaps borderline prostitutes who needed to um, farm their kids out to relatives or friends or to adopt them out or put them in orphanages. So a lot of these poor kids had a very tough start in life and Nettie Smith was one of them. Of course, he wasn't really called Nettie. He didn't realise until he went off to his first boys' home, the Mittagong Boys' Home, when he was 11, where he was sent after stabbing his half-brother. It was only then that he was told that his real name was Arthur Stanley Smith. But he'd always been called Nettie at home and around the streets. In fact, he was brought up, when he wasn't in boys' homes, he was brought up around the streets of Redfern by his maternal grandmother. As a virile woman who didn't like Nettie much, and no wonder, because he was a handful from the start. And uh, Nettie's mother, still a young woman, was out doing the best she could. Meanwhile, Nettie and his half-brother roamed the streets, doing the best they could. And uh, naturally, they got into trouble and started to steal things and run riot in the street. And uh, Nettie, being the tough kid he was, ended up in a series of boys' homes. Now, the first of these was the Mittagong boys' home, where he was treated very well, but steadily... It got worse. The next one, I think, was Grafton. And after that came another one and another one. And each one, he was a bit older and a bit bigger. And the beatings he got from the uh, officers at the boys' homes became worse. And the beatings uh, he handed out to other inmates became more violent. And by the time he'd finished his teens, he was a regular young thug. He was vicious. He was tough. He was strong. And he was tattooed, which in that era in the 1950s, was the badge of criminality. That's something that has changed in recent times. And so it was that Nettie Smith was on the streets of King's Cross and other inner suburbs of Sydney. By the time he was 16, he was living with a prostitute, living on the earnings of prostitution and running around organising thefts, robberies and getting involved in what would become, later on, the drug trade. Along the journey, Nettie Smith was charged with eight murders. He was convicted of only two. 
one of a brothel owner and one of a tow truck driver killed in a road rage incident. But it's interesting that out of eight he was convicted of only two because the other six probably just went away because his friends in the police force were able to pull the paperwork as they did in those days and ditch it and uh, otherwise corrupt the system so that he wouldn't be successfully convicted. And this is how it went for Nettie. He literally got away with murder time after time before eventually a couple of them stuck. To be clear, as lawyers say, Nettie Smith got what he called the green light during the 1980s. Before that time, he did do his share of jail time. And it was during one of his stints in jail, as a relatively young man still, that he met in Long Bay an even younger crook called Warren Landfranke. And Warren Landfranke was very willing, which meant he was up for almost anything, right up to uh, and including murder. He was uh, a drug user and a drug dealer and um, big on fighting and other forms of trouble. He befriended Smith in jail and when they got out of jail, they uh, hung around together. Now, it came about that Landfranke got into big trouble and he knew that the police were going to come for him and that if that happened, he would get a long stretch in jail. So Landfranke comes around to see his mate, Nettie Smith, and he says, Ned, I need your help. I need you to reach out to the police force, maybe Roger Rogerson or someone like that, and fix up this problem I've got because if I go back into jail, I'll do a long stretch. An arrangement was made where Smith would accompany Roger Rogerson to meet Landfranke at a particular suburb of Sydney on a particular day in 1981. And the theory was that Landfranke would have $10,000 cash, a lot of money in, 19, in 1981, the sort of money that would buy a small house in an outer suburb in that era. And the $10,000 cash was to be a bribe for Rogerson and possibly other police for Landfranke to avoid his legal problems. But it turns out that the corrupt police thought that Landfranke could be a problem for them and that he'd be better off out of the way. And without having to chase every rabbit down every burrow, clearly that was the belief. Because when Nettie Smith and Rogerson actually met Landfranke up a dark lane in, um, in a suburban Sydney, Landfranke was shot dead and the $10,000 disappeared. Initially, it was widely held that Rogerson had murdered. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for CrimeX Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. Then Frankie in cold blood, but with the assistance of Smith's evidence given at the subsequent inquest and with evidence given by other police who were backing up Rogerson at the time, it turned out that Rogerson had uh, shot Lane Frankie because Lane Frankie had resisted arrest. Rogerson's claim that, he was, uh, that he'd shot him in self-defence was rejected by the coroner, but the coroner accepted that Rogerson 
had just been performing his duty in trying to arrest a dangerous man. And so in the end, what happened was Rogerson undoubtedly got the $10,000, some of which he probably distributed to his mates in the police force. Rogerson was also, of course, cleared of any overt wrongdoing. And ultimately, and this is the ironic thing, Rogerson was awarded yet another Valor Award, one of many he received in his chequered career. The saga of the life and death of Warren Land Frankie would probably have gone almost unnoticed after the first few days, had it not been for the fact that Warren Land Frankie, dashing young crook, had formed a relationship with a very beautiful prostitute known as Sally Ann Huckstep. Now, Sally Ann Huckstep took the name Huckstep from the no-good heroin-addicted husband that she married as a teenager. Her actual name was uh, nothing like Huckstep. It was, a, I think, a Polish name. And Sally Ann was clever, she was beautiful, and she was flawed. She ended up um, with the wrong sorts of men, the first of whom was this guy Huckstep that she married. He took her to Kalgoorlie when she was still very young and he persuaded her to prostitute herself in Kalgoorlie to pay for his heroin addiction. Later on, she got rid of Huckstep but she kept his name and she had relationships with a series of dangerous men, one of whom was Warren Land Frankie and she was obviously quite fond of Warren Land Frankie because she was very distressed when he was killed and in fact being intelligent as she was and articulate as she was, Sally Ann Huckstep presented a big problem for Roger Rogerson and other corrupt police because Sally Huckstep was able to communicate what had really happened in her view to people in the media and in the wider world and therefore she became very dangerous to Rogerson and other bent police because Sally Ann was quite capable of turning up at legal proceedings, very well briefed. She was accompanied by, you know, a lawyer here and her father there and she was able to make a strong case that Rogerson and others had been implicated in Warren Land Frankie's murder. And this obviously became more and more of a problem for Rogerson. And eventually, in 1986, Sally Ann Huckstep was living in, a, in an apartment with another woman uh, when she received a call one night and she suddenly left the apartment and went out. Now, there's little doubt that she got a call to say that she could buy some form of drug, most probably. What happened next, we don't exactly know, but next morning, Sally Ann Huckstep's body was found floating in some water in Centennial Park, a big park nearby. There was no doubt that she'd met foul play, but no one seemed to know exactly who had done it, or even why. But many years later, Nettie Smith made certain admissions while in jail, admissions that he'd later recanted, but nonetheless admissions, which were that he'd strangled Sally Ann Huckstep and then put her face down in water and stood on her back until she drowned, until he was sure she was dead. And the story almost certainly is that this was done whether Smith did it or someone else did it, that she was murdered to silence her because she was an absolute embarrassment to Rogerson and to other senior police who were in on the joke, as they say. Of course, by this time, the mid-1980s, there was no way Nettie Smith was going to be 
arrested or charged over Sally and Huckstep or even, in fact, questioned over it because, as he boasted later, he was untouchable in the middle of that decade. He said, um, they couldn't catch me because half the police force was helping me. That was how powerful the green light was. Some details of the Sally Ann Huckstep case dribbled out during a long, strange inquest. Her inquest took only 19 days, which is quite a few days, but it was held over four years, between 1987 and 1991. And it was this inquest, as much as almost anything else, that revealed the absolute vicious underbelly of Australian crime at the time. Because this inquest, like the Wood Royal Commission and other inquiries, showed some of what had been going on. And it spelt out the beginning of the end for the likes of Roger Rogerson and his band of crooked coppers and his tame crooks like Nettie Smith. Because in the end, of course, Smith was just a creature of the bent police. In return for being protected, he got to do more or less what he liked. But it meant that he earned the contempt of other criminals who didn't believe in cooperating with police. The fact that he'd given evidence in favour of Rogerson over the Warren Land Frankie affair, when Rogerson had shot Land Frankie and Smith had given evidence that Land Frankie had drawn a weapon and pointed it at Rogerson, that fact burnt him with all the other crooks in Sydney. And he said later that although they feared him because he was big and strong and he was protected and so on, he realised that when he walked into, into a room full of crooks, many of them wouldn't catch his eye because he was no longer quite one of them. It seems that this got at him a bit, but he boasted later that ultimately he did himself a big favour by getting in with Rogerson and the police rather than stick to the criminal code because he said... In the end, the, the crims weren't running the worthwhile crime in New South Wales. The police were. It's interesting to look at what Smith said himself about those years and his relationship with Rogerson and police. He said this in part, I was sweet with dozens of top cops. I met different police all the time and they all came in handy at some time or, or another. I even had cops coming to, to me looking for jobs. Some ex-cops did work for us. By work, of course, he means, you know, robberies and drug dealing and that sort of stuff. He says, Roger was a leading light in the New South Wales Police Force and I was his mate. Naturally, there were a few stray cops that didn't like him, but they all respected him and that's all that mattered. I met so many important connections through my friendship with the Dodger that I couldn't keep track of them all. It was a case of horses for courses, someone for every little thing that may one day need fixing. They all came in handy at some time or other. I fixed everything from drink driving charges to murder blues. Nothing was too big or too small. And that, listeners, is an insight into the, one of the most fearsome scenes ever created in Australian drama. And that is the scene in the drama Blue Murder in which a boatload of bent police and uh, a fellow calling himself Nettie Smith, they go out allegedly fishing in the ocean off Sydney. And they take with them a bent law clerk called Brian Alexander, who was on the fringes of crime and corruption and criminality for years up there and had been a small-time fixer and mover and shaker. But uh, eventually it seemed that Brian Alexander knew too much and the, they decided to get rid of him. 
Now, Brian Alexander didn't realise this, apparently, until they wired an old gas cooker to him and threw him overboard, alive. It is one of the most chilling scenes in cinema history, and it sums up all that was bad about the most corrupt period of Australia's history. Of course, that scene was performed by actors in a drama, but it's believed that it's based entirely on something that really happened. And indeed, all these years later, as Nettie Smith lies dying, or by now, perhaps he's dead, and Roger Rogerson is rotting in another jail cell in New South Wales where he will probably die himself. We know that such things happen because Rogerson is in jail as a result of shooting to death a young drug dealer, placing his body in a surfboard bag in a boat and taking the body out into the waters of botany and throwing it overboard. So it would seem that history repeats itself, except that, you know, 25, 30 years later, Rogerson wasn't as good at getting away with it. And long-time listeners will recall that on other occasions we've spoken of the fate of, the presumed fate of Christopher Dale Flannery, Melbourne hitman, who vanished in Sydney. And it's widely held that his body was taken out in a boat and dropped overboard. And so it would seem to fit a pattern of behaviour. And so in the end, of course, it seems that crime doesn't pay. It seems that none of these guys ever really liked each other. They were just using each other. And I know this because I was once talking to Roger Rogerson about Nettie Smith. And uh, I was asking him about the relationship between them. And he looked at me with those sharp, narrow eyes of his and he said, Nettie was nothing but a rat. So there you are. There's no honour among thieves. Thanks for listening. Please comment or rate it on whatever platform you're using. And if you haven't done it already, please subscribe. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm the former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts.